from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning. The double good mornings. That's the trademark opening of my close friend and colleague, Cade Massey, who is actually not here this morning, which leaves me in the studio. Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton School of Business here to talk Wharton Moneyball with you all. It's a beautiful day here in Pennsylvania. I'm joined in the studio with my friend and colleague, Shane Jensen. How's it going, my man? I'm doing great. And uh, we're not joined by Kate, and we're not joined by Eric. They'll be joining us uh, probably turn of the month. They are doing as on some deep investigative missions for us right now. <laughs> deep investigation. Sure. Trying to find out what happened to the Yankees. Um, hope they discover the antidote. They, to- they realize they actually weren't supposed to be that good this <laughs> no, year. No, I know. What, that's what happened that's to the real. Yankees. But I don't want to uh, get bogged down in baseball too early. We, have, uh, we just wanted to give you guys a, a little heads up to our guest this morning on Wharton Moneyball here at Sirius XM. And our guests this morning are Mark Glickman, who's a close friend of both Shane and mine. Mark is a professor at Harvard University and one of the oldest and most established uh, statisticians involved in sports. He is currently the editor of the Journal of Quantitative Analysis in Sports and uh, has uh, lots of interesting publications, in, uh, in fact, a book on statistics and sports. And we're going to be hearing from Mark. We are also, um, we have a second guest this morning from Baseball Reference. I'm going to uh, um, tell you a little bit about this guest. It's Sean Foreman. Sean Foreman is the founder of Baseball Reference. It's a site which began in 2000, and anyone who knows baseball statistics knows how important Baseball Reference is for getting data. I know that you, Shane, and my and my, we also have students who love to get data and, and try out their statistics skills. No better resource than Baseball Reference. So we'll also be joined by, by Sean Foreman. So that's our, our story in terms of guests. A lot has gone on in sports this week. Um, Shane, what do you think? What's well, caught your also, eye? Why, I mean, I, I've been following a lot of baseball. No, I know. It's been get, a good get week me excited about side. something besides baseball. Well, right okay. Now. So there's a couple things. That probably here in. in I mean, besides the upcoming, we we can talk NFL football. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's for let's the hold off two on that hours today. if you'd like. <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I don't. Like, I don't. For those of you who want to uh, know the background here, uh, there is a bit of a division in the four of us uh, yeah. about the sports that we are passionate about. Um, and Shane probably is. Well, you know, Shane and and it's, it's, I mean, I I would I be, before the last couple years. I think I would have put baseball on top. Um, but what's been happening in the NFL, as, a, as a spe- specifically as a Patriots fan, I think. It's been I, terrific. I, it, well, yes, it's been terrific, obviously. And I'm sure everybody out there agrees with me how terrific it's been. But, um, but it's, I, you it's, know, it's become a bit of an obsession with me now. So it, it's, it's, it's good. to. I, I'm trying to really kind of branch back out to other sports. I'm paying attention to my fantasy baseball teams for the first time wow. in like uh, months and they're they're not very good as it turns out if you don't pay attention. That's a topic to we a, have we have assiduously avoided yeah, for a long no, time. No, because nobody cares about your fantasy team and I know nobody That's cares right. about mine, but I, I am trying to branch out to the other non-football sports. Well, Shane, so I usually count on you. First, your football is, of course, your, your passion right yeah. now. Baseball has always been, and since I've known you, a passion. But you're always usually a good candidate to tell me stuff about hockey. Yeah, no, um, and I mean, soccer. obviously, we were talking. I mean, hockey, obviously, it's, it's kind of the Settled. calm before in the storm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we had an amazing playoff run that... I guess, unfortunately, ended in the Penguins winning it. But, you know, whatever. It, it was still an amazing run with a lot of kind of really cool underdog stories. Um, 
But yeah, there's but that not... ended over a week ago, so that's not immediately on your eye. <laughs> well, well, I mean, there's it, it is even even baseball takes a little time off before people launch into acquisitions. Right. And stuff well, this like is that, actually so. a fairly slow season if I had to figure it out. I mean, baseball certainly in full, mm-hmm. but it's before the NFL. The basketball is yeah. over. Hockey is over. The, the thing that's being talked about in Philadelphia is the is the NBA draft, yes. and I just yeah, wouldn't like to really I'd like to turn to that thing. and it, just to give a little background for Philadelphia. To the, about the world, if you're listening here at Sirius XM 111. If you'd like to call in, by the way, and, and ask a question, we are here at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com or follow us on Twitter at BizRadio111. But for those of you out in the wide world who don't know what's happened in, in, in uh, basketball here in Philadelphia, the answer is really nothing for many years. This, this, well, and that's but, the thing. We're we're kind of fans of Sam Hinkie in the process in the studio. I would say, um, more, well, more just give more, us a, give us a little bit back. Sam Hinkie was the, the well, general well, manager. Was the general manager was a kind of what I would regard as a visionary general manager in the NBA. And I mean, he, his his kind of guiding principle behind what what was called the process was that you know the the key to sort of success in the NBA is really to kind of. Essentially, get people like LeBron James, <laughs> and, you know keep, I mean? and keep trying. Until yeah, you... <laughs> that's right. I mean, like it turns out in the NBA, if you don't have stars, you're not going to win a championship. That's well, you know, but, a but, fun but fact. Just, so, but LeBron James is obvious a star, and mm-hmm. when I mean he was yeah. a high school player before they didn't allow that's that. Right. Everybody knew he was a superstar when he was drafted. Yeah, and I mean, he maybe that's not a great example, but I mean, if you want to sort of like get the Kevin Durant's or Stephen Curry's of the world. The best way to do that is to have as many chances per right. year as possible. So it was a real focus. You know, I mean, he came into an organization who was already scuffling, and basically his whole focus was let's try and put together as many chances to have these superstars as possible. So most of the moves were to trade kind of established players for future chances, basically, through the draft. And, of course, on the court, that resulted in really bad teams Ruinous for several reasons. Yeah. Uh, and, and that beca- became, I guess, kind of intolerable to ownership in the league and all that stuff. So it didn't really— And it wasn't very happy for the city but to be so outclassed in every single game to chase records for the worst That's team right. ever. That's right. Yeah, it was, certainly most people going to the game were going to see whoever the Sixers were playing. Now, so so let's, let's bring our, our— So our, fast forward to now, and, you know, the thing is the process has already started working, right? Yeah, uh, or well, I, well, I, <laughs> they won more games last year than they did the previous That's one. right. I mean, or, or certainly people are more excited now about— um, the team, because finally some of these younger players have have, have gelled and are, are, are you know the team's starting to improve. So so the future looks bright for the Sixers. Um, and now they you know obviously this last week they essentially traded a substantial number of these accumulated picks that they had done through this process for the. Uh, for the so, first round so, so what did they year. actually give up? I mean, let's just put some background here. The the uh, the criticism of Hinky and his strategy of just grabbing the best player available, kind of year after year, is that <laughs> three centers. I mean, this was a team without a point guard. So here in, yeah. in in Philadelphia, there's been a lot of talk that we need to fill this incredibly well. Some would say important, others would say less important. The the playmaker, maybe the the, the point guard. And what the what the Sixers did was they traded. What exactly did they trade? I know they traded. They had the third pick, and they traded their third pick for the first pick with and as, and they as did well that with as the, the Celtics. 27, 2018. 2018 
top pick. Well, it's, it's I it, think it's still uncertain because it it, it depends because, because there's a lot uh, right. exactly. Most of the picks are de- determined by you know the pick ordering is determined by you know lottery slash like your record in the season. So it's it's, it's a little uncertain exactly where the placement of that pick. Right. Is. So I know that they didn't trade away the first pick if they do get it. So in 2018, if they yeah. do get the first pick, uh, Philadelphia gets to keep it. But if yeah. they do get the Phil- uh, lower than that, I think two through five, yeah. they have to trade it away. And if not, then there's some clause about what happens in in 2019. Yeah. But think about it, if you think about it on a, so in, in, in football draft, and we don't have Cade today, but he was instrumental in kind of discussing this, there's this, there's a trade value for every draft position. Yeah. And they've developed those things now for basketball. And by the trade value, it doesn't look good. So if you use the analytic yeah. approach, going from one to three is just not that big a difference to give away your f- first rounder in the f- yeah. in subsequent year, even even at a reasonable discount yeah, rate. Uh, yeah, that's right. And I mean, it's sort of, it, it's also, I mean, like on, a, on an even more macro level, the kind of a, a negative view of this particular trade is they basically sucked for how long? Five years or something <laughs> like that, that. Um, in order to accumulate all these draft assets. And then you basically trade half of those or more than uh, half of those to Boston. So Boston gets half of the results of the process and didn't have to suck for five years in order to get them. So... You know, I, so then why are Sixers Boston's fans happy? getting a great deal out of this? They do well. Right? So tell me, why do you think Sixers are happy? Well, I mean, I, I think because you know, and I mean, this is the counter argument to everything I've said thus far, or we've said thus far, is is they kind of feel like they really are maybe on the cusp here. So I mean, if if this person here is a partic- is the particular kind of missing piece. So for who what are we talking? Doing. We're talking about Markel Futz, which is generally. Fultz, yeah. uh, did I say it right? Fultz. 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 He's the he's the perceived best player for yeah, the Sixers top pick. and consensus top pick. Although there's a lot of controversy about that, but he's consensus and he's supposed to fit with the fit with the Sixers. Yeah, so that's right. the classic idea about the draft, which makes it kind of hard to use analytics, is that the teams have the staff that they have, the, the, the yeah. roster they have, and it, you can't just go with the best player, even if it's considered the consensus best. You need to think about what works with your team, yeah. although it's generally regarded that, that Fultz is the best, te- best, team, uh, best player, although I'm not sure why we think that. Um, because he wasn't so good in college, um, so do you have any thoughts about what makes him so good and why the why they want them? And, and they're giving away sh- uh, the third pick, which there's some great players there. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I I, I think it's the problem is I, he is who they want, and because he's a consensus top pick, they know he's not gonna. There, there's no chance he's gonna fall to three. So I mean, like right. given given that he was the consensus top pick, and given that they want him, that. Trading from three to one obviously makes sense if you want if you need that guy. Um, why you need that particular guy? That that's I think uh, less. You know, I mean, I think everybody in Philadelphia has convinced themselves that this is the guy. This is the but, guy. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't necessarily see this guy as. Um, I mean, I, I, as a game changer for the right. For yeah, the I, mean, I mean, I guess he doesn't. I, I, the argument can certainly be made. I could be convinced that he's the best uh, best player available, you know, for for the Sixers this year. So here's the knock. But you you also have the option to kind of not do this, you know, and 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 wait till next year. Okay. So first of all, I mean, there's two couple things that that, yeah. that are in the soup here, and a lot of teams are making moves and thinking about this. Um, one is that it, and I've did, tried to do some reason, reading about the draft this year to get some sense of it. And there's an actual interesting uh, analytical conundrum here because Fultz is really did not have a great, didn't have great numbers. 
but the and the models that forecast for him based on based on numbers suggest that there are many other players in the draft who have a much better chance of being all stars in the yeah. NBA, and yet somehow Fultz is the number one. So the question becomes, why is he this way? And by the reading that I said is that he seems to have all the skills, and everyone's kind of walking away from his his numbers in college based on the assumption that he played at UW and there was nobody else good. Mm-hmm. And essentially what would happen is he would go out and play whoever they were playing, and they would double-team him consistently. And he yeah. just never had the opportunity to take good shots. And so his scoring efficiency just doesn't look that high. But if you look at the videotape and you see what's actually going on, right. he's just great. Uh, I mean, he just never had the chance yeah, to do I, well. I mean, so. it, it's, it's almost like, to a certain extent, it, it's, it's almost like a classical scouting versus uh, analytics kind of debate where obviously he looks really good from a scouting aspect. If you actually watch him, you know, people are convinced that this guy is going to be something great, um, but the, the numbers aren't there. I mean, it could be that the more sophisticated numbers are there, right? So, I mean, you know, I, you know th- theoretically, some of the more sophisticated video-based kind of analytics-type things that bas- people are doing in basketball now may actually illuminate the fact that he is actually really good. I just don't think that that is go- that that is not sort of. Um, kind of come out into the in, into the public domain yet. Well, it hasn't. And the, well, that's actually, we interviewed on our show the founder of SportsView, or one, yeah. of, one of the, and SportsView is putting that, this technology. That's really, yeah, that's exactly They're what doing I'm that, talking about. But I don't about. think we have that for college yet. No, uh, and, but, but this, I mean, we, the public does not no, have it. It's not, it's not clear that, you know, I mean, I mean definitely these cameras exist in, in, in college, right? It's yeah. just whether or not, so there's... I don't know if it's sort of something where the Sixers are making this decision essentially based on, you know, rather con- conventional or, or, or traditional scouting type um, observations or whether behind the scenes they actually have a fairly strong analytical argument for this as well. So Certainly the superficial analytical arguments would not say that this is a is, is kind of the right move. So one of the things that's interesting about the cameras, what the cameras do is allow you to create an expected value of a shot. That's exactly given right. Given all the, it, the, the features of, the, of, least, all the, of, all the, of all the individuals. And so what that can do is, is if you're getting points which seem typical for – Average That's overall right. so- shots, but then you integrate the fact that you're you're just being heavily guarded, then you can actually look yeah. like you have have quality. Yeah, I mean, it's basically if he's going down the court and getting double teamed, but not actually being able to take a free shot and maybe not even getting the ball. The very essence of him being double teamed contributes right. value to his uh, to the team, right? Which, which of course it does, and we expect none of that to happen at the at the NBA level, and so we expect great things from him in the yeah. future. But it's interesting because there are other point cards. I don't know whether Lonzo Ball is probably is would have made it down to the uh, down to the Sixers. I, I know the Lakers are are predicted to pick to pick him. There are also lots of great talent there, and just by the straight numbers, and this and and, and uh, I've been looking at some of these these sort of fall off in value charts. I mean, they fall off. It doesn't fall off. As as quickly as you as you can imagine, it's not quite so much like the NFL. NFL does fall off a little faster from one to two to three, but yeah. in uh, in basketball, you still got a lot of value in the in the in the two to five range, and that's really what they're giving out, giving away in the future, at the, at the high end. Yeah, and I, and I mean, I think it's I, I, the NFL versus NBA drafts. I mean, again, we really need Cade to kind of like do a deep dive <laughs> yeah. on this, right? But uh, what in I, I think there's more somehow uncertainty in the NFL, even at the really top, like in the top 10 picks, say, for example, the NFL draft compared to the NBA draft, just because, I mean, 
I, I can certainly think of NBA top like five failures, but that oh, I, I, I almost you know that we, sure. we could we can name a bunch. But I, I think you're typically if you're drafted top five in the NBA, that's fairly, fairly predictive I think that's of more than contributing NFL. value. More Far so more than, than NFL. NFL, in part because a lot of the top picks in the NFL are trying to guess at that great quarterback, and right. quarterbacks mm-hmm. seem to be just super unpredictable. So I mean, it's really hard to predict who's going to become that kind of oh. like a real kind of top like 10 quarterback talent in the NFL. A lot of draft action going on there. We we had the the uh the MLB draft last week which no most people don't really yeah, pay attention to yeah, because it, it's, because it's, it's years away. Well, right. Very That's few right. people you actually ro- you got to really be into an organ following closely an organization. You know, at, at at sort of like, you know, from the single A level up, up to, to really kind of appreciate the impact of a draft. But it's interesting. Here's a figure that I'll toss out. I'm going to ask you to make a guess at it. In the in the uh, MLB, what fraction of the first rounders have, make it to the majors? Mm. That's an interesting. So uh, uh, yeah. lost our question or high impact, we'll, we'll save for later. But yeah. what fraction make it? And I don't know how to compare that. I do have the number because we've been running some draft yeah. numbers in the MLB. I would I would say um what do you think probably ha- like they just have to make it to the majors oh, yeah one game in the majors in the show as they say oh yeah oh I would say two thirds of the first round at least not a bad guess but it's actually much higher oh. it's it's ho- above ninety five percent is there Almost- some weird bias though where they're I mean. You know, just organizationally, you're always going to give your first round pick a chance. Absolutely, right? right. You, you, you know, you've invested I mean, heavily in them. You move them through the yeah, system high. Your job's um, on the line if you your first round pick does not make it to the majors. Right. But so that's so so that's the MLB. There's also another draft. I don't know if you have any knowledge about this, but there's an NHL expansion draft. Oh no, yeah, I do have knowledge about this. <laughs> so it's you, really exciting. So so just the background: Las yeah. Vegas is getting. A, a team. A team. They're getting another team, too. Aren't they getting an NFL team? Isn't they it? are. They are. Yeah. So Las Vegas is now on the map with two professional sports. Um, so they're ex- set to get an expansion. Now, how does it work? Well, I mean, I, I think it works the same in basically like every uh, league as far as expansion. It's just we haven't had expansion in any right. of the other leagues in, in some time. But basically what happens is, you know, you don't you don't want this team to start out terrible, right? So what you do is is – you essentially the team gets to poach X amount of players from the other teams, and so so the way so that actually works it, right? is is right. I mean, you're, every team in the NHL gets to protect a certain number of players, and then the rest are essentially fair game for Vegas to poach. So I wonder who who is the best open or poachable that, player. I, I haven't looked at the list. That would be actually it could be because I think it's um it's only very very recently, like within the last few days, I think that uh um the Teams have had to make their decisions as far as which which teams uh, players to protect. So we'd have to have a look at the list. But my impression is that the you know just from my reading before these decisions were made is that you know the the number of protected players um, that each team is allowed to have is small enough that there's going to be a lot of talent out there for Vegas. Yeah, I would imagine there would. Be. I mean, they're probably not going to not you know they're not going to they're going to come into the league and not be particularly great, but. For their first couple seasons, probably because well, they're not. I eating, wonder whether they, because usually in expansion, you're right at the bottom to start with, but maybe yes, they're not that's because right. there's so many. Uh, I think they probably will be. I mean, almost every expansion team, even though they do get the pick from sort of like, you know, the um, sort of mid tier players of every other team, do not come in and blow everybody's socks off. So so there's a lot of baseball to talk about, but I want to hold off on that. I wanted to actually ask you about uh, another big sport going on that is, is one of your. 
so, no, you, well, you certainly have more knowledge in this than I do. There's a oh, big soccer. Curling. Oh, damn. There's a big All soccer. Right. No, no curling. <laughs> Let's talk yes, about curling. We're going to talk about. I actually uh, don't have anything to say uh, about curling other than brooming, the fact that you should all a... be watching it <laughs> when it's a, on. It's but not there's the a big soccer cup, anyway. soccer cup called the Confederations Cup going on. Well, there you go. Is that, is that, is I'm that sure the, all of Europe is nuts over this, but but here in the United States, we have no clue that it's happening. Wait, is the Confederations Cup? I thought that was a CONCACAF thing. I thought that was like a North American thing. We no? know apparently. Well, see, see I, I don't see know anything you know about, about it. About Tell this. me about the Confederations so Cup. It's, basically, it's the it's the it's the it's the winner of the World Cup and a host nation and the six continental champions. They oh all, wow! So it's serious business. But I'm not sure you're seeing the yeah, best it's players. Yeah, very high profile. Um, uh, and 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 this is a obviously big deal for for almost the entire entirety of the world. But the United United States is still uh, lagging behind in their interest, in well, and that probably is because, of course, the United States isn't in it. Yeah, they're, they're... Uh, no, and, and, and basically, I, I think it really is. I mean, if, if if I can try and do an analogy, if if something like professional football, if there was like you know leagues all over the world and they fought each other, like like basically, it seems like there is no off season in soccer. Like, there's always some kind of international competition going on when the when the actual league competitions aren't happening. And I'm sure that if you follow the sport closely, it's it's very exciting. But I mean, frankly, yes. I mean, a lot of I think most fans in the United States, um, they maybe tune in for the MLS season, and they maybe they probably follow, they they certainly follow like the big leagues in Europe, and then they follow the World Cup. Beyond that, I'm not sure. Not sure. I'm not but sure. Is it, like is it soccer somewhat somewhat of a star driven sh- um, at least for the United States? I mean, people will, will watch Ronaldo. They'll well, watch Messi. Star driven or nationality driven? So I think um, you know the the World Cup, whatever. Um, I think attracts a lot of attention, not just because of the kind of the star factor, though the star factor is high. Everybody plays in the World Cup, but they can. Um, but I think there also the you know there's a lot of nationalism as well. There is. People, people get excited about that. It's the same reason we get super excited about like you know suddenly like how good you know America is at like you know the 200 meter sprint like every four years we get excited. Years. It's not that the 200 meter sprint is particularly compelling to us. Well, here's it's another sport that, that nobody's watching is the college World Series, which is amazing because the NCAA basketball tournament is such mm-hmm. a big deal, and of course the football tournament if you want to call it that yeah. the playoff structure is an enormous deal in this country yet baseball just doesn't hit anybody's radar and while it's it's which it should because a lot of the top talent playing yeah. in, the, in the world series will be future stars in the mlb but it, it, it gets it, it, so watered down you don't know and, who and they i mean are. I, I think i think the other issue uh, i mean because you know there's there's also you know things like uh the, the, there's the bean pot. There's, there's co- really good college competitions in hockey as well. For whatever reason, even though, of course, baseball at the professional level is our national pastime, baseball at, at, at the you know pre-national level, like college and stuff like that, is a pretty regional sport, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, it, it, it's it's you know it's 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 the Clemsons and the you know the the you know Texases of the world that are really competitive and you don't you, you it's it's very regional you don't get you know so you know any of the new northeast colleges or anything like that participating in the college world series no you don't and so 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 the the NCA is a regional now one more last us last big event that happened this week uh, a week ago in the studio Kate and I talked about the US Open this was before it happened and one of the topics was this it, in golf it seems to be that they're just so hard to have any handle on who's going to win it mm-hmm. and last last week it looked like you had Other to go than that decade when Tiger yeah, was the <laughs> obvious but, pick right i mean we, we was... went we I, I counted down the the prior probabilities you needed to go back 
about seven or eight deep into the top player list before you found half the probability. Oh, yeah. No, and I, and I think that's all. I mean. And how did it play out? Did you watch any of the, any of the U.S. Open? I was unfortunately not able to watch much of the U.S. Open. But, but none of the top players yeah. were even really in it other than Ricky Fowler was was. Finished no, it, tied it, for fifth, but for the most part, it's actually kind of an exciting time in golf to have it so wide open. Because is mo- it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it. I mean, I guess it sort of like depends on the way you view the sport. I mean, if it, it was, it was also, in, I think, exciting to me when when Tiger was so dominant. You know, to sort of watch this player kind of essentially play against the field and have that be an equal match. Right. That was that was a really intriguing storyline that like kept us on and you know enraptured for a decade or however long it was happening. Um, but now it's sort of, you, you know, now that it's kind of wide open, you, you see, if, if you're a fan of the game and you're a fan of the kind of variety and, and, and how international it's become, I think it's kind of an exciting time. You, you like it. I, I have to say, I mean, this is an interesting observation. Is it better to have dominant golfers, one or two or three, yeah. that you can count on seeing and, and have rivalries and, and focus on what their accomplishments are? Right. Or do you see what we're having now, which it seems like anyone, it's like a new winner every time. Yeah. And parity across the board. This was a, this was a, new, a, new, yeah. uh, a new location. So this was, the, this was one of the earliest course, courses a very long course has interesting characteristics. Yeah. There was a couple shots which were amazingly well, this is, well, impressive. I mean, this is kind. Of, I mean, in the, <clears throat> golf, golf, I think does a good job of this because you've you've got the Masters where it's always at the same location. You kind of have that like sort of historical comparison that you right. can constantly do, and then you have the U.S. Open that just moves around all over the place, right? And, and I then think you have the British Open parody, that moves right? around. I, I, I think it's really that's right, and I, I think it's sort of also it, to the extent that the courses really do kind of like pre-select for certain the, uh, the skill sets of certain players i think it is kind of parody inducing and i and i like that aspect of and it i think it may not be quite reflected in the in the in the vegas odds and one and one of you know kate's colleague uh rufus peabody right. is is becoming a quite a serious golf better i think there's a lot of juice in the golf yeah bet. I, and i think that's probably be just because you know it's it's something that most of vegas isn't devoted towards right i mean i think you know probably nfl wise you know there's a lot more people kind of just basically a lot more the betting industry is focused on that than on golf and so there is probably a lot of arbitrage there for somebody who is really going to get into golf betting so yeah well i think that's not a, that i would recommend not that, that you recommend. it's, a, career, it's a hard but, it's know. a hard sport to imagine any yeah. data in i mean this is something yeah. that the data is for golf is still trailing behind it's starting to come along yeah uh, and, and it's being collected but it's in terms of the public's eye it's really not being looked at too carefully i'm sure guys like rufus peabody are dealing very seriously into um into looking at that data on a close level now there is i mean we're, we're trying to pick up well, all the before, before we move on like yeah. this oh this whole kind of dominance versus parity question like with it's different in uh, individual sports like golf but what about team sports do you think so, um, and I'm asking a Yankee fan, which is interesting. <laughs> um, do you think that like sports, like like team sports, like baseball or football, like in an era where there's like one historic, like kind of historically dominant team versus things are really wide open, what do you think is more compelling in general? Or does it kind of, I mean, I guess, you know, I mean, obviously for somebody like me who's a Pats fan, I'm like, yeah, it's great to have a dominant team because it happens, it happens to be to my be your team. Favorite team. I'm actually, not sure everybody else is enjoying that so much. Well, I mean, I actually think the Pats is interesting because I think while they are dominant, I don't think anybody believes, I mean, the sport doesn't, it's not like a, a lock-up sport. No, that's So right. the in, it's going to be very interesting. Here you are in football. Look at that. Good job. Um, and it's so it's no matter what, even though the preseason ranks right now, the power ranks from yeah. the Pats are there at nine, the closest team is like four and a half. Um, 
it, that's still within the margin of error. It's not as predictable as Golden State go, right. or, 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 or Cleveland going to the finals in the and, NBA. And that's almost boring. So what happened in, 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 in basketball is almost the absurdity of the other side, yeah. where it was the, the Warriors followed by the, by the Cavs, and it just just looked like so inevitable, and it was. That said, and of TV course, ratings were pretty good for the NBA Finals. So, Well, people were very interested in that. Actually, just to... Right? We can, I we mean, can... so may, maybe people don't... You, you know, I mean, again, I see it as sort of it's it's too bad that we kind of, like, had to spend this entire season getting exactly where we knew we would be, but at the same time, people watch. Well, for the most part, that's because I think... I mean, here's an interesting part. No matter what happened, you could have said, I told you so. Mm-hmm. So if the Cavs played it close or won, there would have been people like Eric Bradlow saying, hey, we told you so. If... What actually happened corresponded to what the mathematical forecasts were. Well, the the Warriors were just an infinitely better team in almost every level. It almost played out too perfectly from the statistics perspective. Although it's interesting because uh, I talked to one of one of one of my uh, one of our students here. He actually lost a bit of money by betting on the Cavs, and I said, "What were you doing?" Mm -hmm. And he essentially said, "Well, I got really good odds in Europe." So there was so much. so people were so reluctant to take the Cavs in Europe that the odds for the Cavs had gotten, he actually got the Cavs at about 20% probability, which which is about twice the mathematical yeah. probability, but a far less than what the odds were were here in yeah. the United States. This was interesting. And the television um, ratings were so high because I was I watched every game. It was fascinating yeah. to watch LeBron versus the, possibly, in fact, probably the greatest team of all time. Yeah. And it was just fun yeah. to see that. So, but it wouldn't have been fun if the Cavs weren't there. If this was just a walk away by by the Warriors, no one would have cared a whit. Yeah, and so so two top teams is is great. I mean, LeBron was the only reason that it, LeBron was the only chance any series against that particular Golden State team would have been competitive, right? Yeah, I it, mean that was the, I mean, and and also he's he's the sort of world beater, greatest, yeah. possibly one of the greatest players, top two or three players ever. Yeah, I think and, greatest and, player of all time. Yeah, and and therefore it just gives you the sense that this is unimaginably good. Well, that pretty much wraps up our first quarter. We covered most sports. We didn't talk about the World Cup of sailing, and that's possible. Because we, as oh you talked about we your nationalistic, we Yankees, not the Yankees, uh, the, the New Zealand is, is pretty much handing it to the to the to the America's team, um, and that of, of course makes us unhappy. But that is an, another sport where an, analytics has had a tr- huge impact. But I don't think it's the kind of thing that most of our listeners really understand. I know we don't quite understand, yeah. but a lot of data has been collected and has been brought to bear on producing terrific boats and terrific strategies for winning. Too bad for the United States; they don't look like going to have much of a possibility of doing that. When we come back, we will be talking to Mark Glickman um, and uh, he will be discussing a lot of some of his interesting uh, work in analytics and we'll talk to you after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host of the show this morning, Professor Adi Weiner of the Department of Statistics at the Wharton Business School, and I'm joined in the studio with another member of the Department of Statistics here at the Wharton School, Shane Jensen, and we've uh, wrapped our way through most of the goings-on in the sports this week, and now we're going to turn our attention to a wonderful guest. We have Mark Lickman here. Mark Lickman is the Senior Lecturer on Statistics at Harvard University. 
and he's uh, the author of many publications and articles, um, uh, maybe most recently and most prominently perhaps for the sports world, is the Statistical Methods and Analysis in its Sports book. He's one of the, one of the authors and editors of that book. Um, he is currently the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Quantitative Analysis in Sports, and, um, and in that capacity, uh, both Shane and I know him quite well, as well as from the tour of, of the statistical community and the statistical in sports. So, Mark, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. This is uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Hey, Mark, how's it going? <laughs> hey, how you doing, Shane? So yes, so Shane, uh, Shane, and Mark go way back. Um, they're from the Bayesian statistical community, actually. Although I will, uh, yeah, I was going to say, actually, Adi, you and I go back. I think even further. We do go back even further. Yeah. Mark, Mark was a legend at the Columbia High School math community, which uh, <laughs> uh, when I was in in, uh, in high school, he was a few years older than me, and Mark was the the, the superstar ge- uh, genius from four years ahead of me, and an aspirant to all of us. And it's great to be talking to you in you know, 30 years of, have, have transpired yeah, since know, then. I know, I know. I still picture you guys like, you know, as little children, but... Um, oh, right. We're all grown up. I mean, mentality-wise, you still got it. That's but, about yeah, right. Exactly. But yeah, I'm actually going to bring us back a little bit to you, to some of the early roots here, um, and and there's a, there's some modernity to this as well. I, I remember you also being as a, as a, as a terrific chess player, mm, and... Yeah. And uh, and and one of the most prominent. So if you if you research Mark Mark Lippman's work, one of the things that comes up is as a system for analyzing and ranking chess players called the Glico. But before we, we're going to get to that, but I wanted the background I want to bring to our, our listeners is the what the Glico is supposed to improve on is is the model called the Elo model. It's named after a man whose last name was Elo, who ranked chess players. And this is the standard method, or one of the, the, the sort of the first and 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 largely still most yeah, prominent so method. You- yeah, it's still have, very heavily used. But it's used now. <laughs> 538 has grabbed the ELO model and has made this... Shame on them. I know, I know. Well, they've made it a monster. And, and just yeah. to put it... ELO to, is everywhere now. It's crazy. So much so that you'll even hear management and players talking about the ELO rating. I think it probably hit its apex at, the, at this last uh, uh, basketball tournament, well, the, the finals, because the ELO model had the, had the, the Warriors at about a 90% probability of winning and other you, models based on, on 538.com's uh, projection that's right yeah. so what, what i wanted to do is to t- why don't you tell us a little bit about elo and its shortcomings and then lead into a little bit with glico sure yeah so so the elo system was developed as you said by uh Pat elo who is a physics professor back um you know it was all developed back in the late 50s early 60s and um you know the whole point was to um come up with an improvement on what they were currently doing to rank chess players the basic idea is that you end up, um, based on your your wins and losses in in games that you play uh, against opponents, you end up uh, um, getting a rating. The higher the rating, the better you are. And the new feature about his system is that the um, you know when you start defeating players that are say better than you, your rating will increase um, you know, proportionately. If you if you defeat players that are much worse than you, your rating will go up by not but not by that much. And, and, you know, the key innovation in what he was doing is that he would end up um, uh, essentially scaling the amount by which rating would go up as a logistic function of the difference of the player's ratings. It used to be before that uh, a linear function. Uh, and so what you would end up getting is these crazy situations where uh, players' rankings were all over the map, and it was pretty clear that uh, players were, um, you know, who had high ratings were losing pretty consistently to players with low ratings, and it turned out a lot to be a function of like how often they were playing and so it just it wasn't working so elo system is actually uh, a pretty amazing improvement and it's uh 
you know, it's a, it, it was a big deal, and it, and it still is a big deal. So, you know, my my uh, take on all this really kind of came about after, um, you know, developing uh, essentially a, a big probability model for um, outcomes of uh, head-to-head games as part of my dissertation. And, you know, it, it involved a full uh, Bayesian analysis, very, uh, very computationally intensive um, and, and it, you know, that, that wasn't the sort of thing that, even though it had fairly principled uh, underpinnings, you know, you would never want to roll that out as a rating system. It would just be, you know, too much computation. So, Mark, let me just interrupt by pointing yeah. out that one of the reasons why ELO is so championed by 538 is, first, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty workable system. I mean, it produces normal. Yeah, it's norm- simple. I mean, anybody can. But that's can, it. Uh, it. It's simple, and they've used it to, to kind of roll through all, of course, all professional sports. You can use it; it doesn't matter. Um, and they can they can simply roll it forward, and you can track Elo over time. And it right. and it and of course, you have to deal with with in, you know season to season transitions and how you deal with that. But this allowed right. it's, it's a dynamic system. Yeah. yeah. So so ratings change over time as your results get you know better or worse. You know your rating goes up if you if you out, you know perform better than expected. It goes. Down if you if you perform worse than expected, the the main um, you know the the confluence of, of I guess two uh, two things happened. Um, you know, first is that you know I I realized that there was something there to this uh, this idea that I had in my dissertation, and you know realizing that you couldn't roll it out because it was too computationally intensive. But then the second thing was kind of appreciating that one of the one of the big negatives with Elo system is that all you get is a rating. You get a single number that describes your uh, your ability. So the problem is that you could have a situation where maybe two teams have, you know, in, in the context of, of rating rating teams as opposed to chess players, you could have two teams say uh, in like some amateur league that have the same rating, the same ELO rating, but one of them is like plays all the time, and so that rating is a fairly uh, reliable measure of their strength. Whereas another team, you know, maybe only played like once or twice, and so the rating that you compute was only based on very limited information. It doesn't really so, capture the uncertainty of that rating. Exactly. So so the so in the ELO system there there's no concept of of uh, capturing uncertainty of the ratings. So essentially what the Glico system does, my you know the system that I developed by by essentially um, essentially linearizing um, you know this this uh, in vast computation that's involved in the full um, you know the, the, the full Bayesian of, model, uh, yeah. Yeah, the, the full Bayesian model. Um, is uh, essentially uh, incorporates uh, this measure of reliability. Essentially, it, it comes. It, you know, the, the simplest way to describe it probably is that every player uh, after a tournament ends up getting not only a rating, which you can think of as like a mean rating, but you also get like a standard error of your rating. And so the reason that's important is that if, like, you know, suppose uh, Shane that you're playing me in a chess game, and our ratings are the same. Huh. <laughs> well, Boy, this is, this is imagination, right? I okay. played Mark in a chess game, and that did not—that's not how it went. But yes, yeah, all right. So, so suppose um, suppose it's a situation where you're you're playing chess all the time, like you know you're you're just like um, you know whenever you're not uh, hosting the show, you're just like playing chess online, and so your 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 rating is actually a pretty accurate measure of your or precise measure of your ability. Whereas, like I haven't played in tournaments in like you know 15 years, and I just haven't had much of a chance. So, so the, the idea is that suppose that I end up uh, defeating you uh, in, a, in a game. If you end up incorporating, if it were ELO, we would just end up like exchanging ratings. Like your, your rating would go down by the same amount my rating would go up. The, if in, 
if we were using something like the Glico system where you're incorporating my large standard error because we're very uncertain about my rating and your small standard error um, because we know how reliable your rating is, what's going to happen is my rating should actually increase quite a bit because I'm learning a lot of information about my ability as a result of defeating somebody with a reliable rating. Whereas your rating is probably going to go down, but only like a, by a minuscule amount, because you're not learning very much about your ability by having lost to somebody whose rating is completely unreliable. Right. So the, so the key idea in, in the Glico system is that rating changes really do depend on how uncertain your opponent's ratings are. Yeah, and, that, yeah. and that's a real key feature. So this play, yeah. could play out in, enormously in, say, college, uh, college, say, football. Um, for example, right. one of the things we talk about in college football. I mean, so if I were going to summarize the Elo system uh, in one short phrase, I would say it's a sort of a strength-adjusted winning percentage. And as we know, when when winning percentages, if you've only played two games, well, what the hell does it mean? What your winning percentage is is very uncertain. And so what happens in, say, college football is that there's the the schedules are very different. And so the ELO kind of tries to take into that that into account. And what your system would do is said, well, if you only played one strong team and you beat them, that's very different than a team that's played five times a strong team and they beat them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a, a lot of you know, a lot of the action is kind of a function of the the frequency that you play, um, and, and so you know, I think part of the reason you know a system like Glico probably hasn't really uh, caught on you know by in, in a huge way at least in you know professional sports is that you know the the tournament um, you know the design of of schedules is balanced. Yeah. everyone's everyone's playing the same number of of teams, but but in college, um, you know, at least. It's a little trickier. Um, uh, I mean, they're mostly playing the same games, but you know, you could have a, a widely different number of uh, results. Yeah, and so I mean, I, I, I think kind of a general point, that, or, or some maybe a, a takeaway from our listeners from this entire discussion is that if if you're talking about something like say the NFL or the NBA, where 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 schedules are more relatively balanced, more or less balanced, mm-hmm. um, and this, every team's playing the same number of games. ELO is probably something you can kind of really buy into. I think really where where ELO then breaks down is is situations where the, that the uncertainty uh, the, that there's a lot of difference in uncertainty between the different kind of individuals or teams in the sport. And so something like amateur, you know, college football, college mm-hmm. basketball, you know, and they do this for like golf and tennis too, which well, has to have a tennis, tremendous tennis, amount of uncertainty. Yeah, no. Te- well, tennis is actually a, a great example because you know you have these. Uh, you know, new new players coming on the scene all the time, and um, you know they don't have much data. Yeah, there's not much data on them, so, so. so you, you need to start by being fairly uncertain. Let the data tell you, you know, what the rating is over time. And even even frankly, in in um, in professional sports, uh, for head to head competition, um, you, you know, at the start of the season. Yeah, no, that's you know, right. You, you know, you you want to kind of act like you don't really have much information. So yeah, historically, um, going back over, like you know, if to evaluate the NFL teams of the '80s, Elo's okay because you know they've played entire seasons and stuff like that. But yes, right. you know, four games into a season, the schedules are super unbalanced. So that mm-hmm. then I think Elo would would potentially mislead as well. Mark, is there, but is there a feature in Glico, or, or 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 should there be one built that that even though this the number of games played is the same, 
the quality of the schedules are com- very imbalanced, and that leaves a lot of uncertainty on on quality. Uh, because, of, as I mentioned in my previous example, let's say you you, you played a top a, a good team only once and mm-hmm. or twice, and you won one, you lost one, and so Elo might treat that as the same as another team that that played uh, top teams ten times and won five, lost five. But you're but you know that they're not the same. Right, right. So, I mean, I, actually, I think <laughs> if I'm understanding your your question, um, that I the I think both systems um, handle um, uh, you know results against like much stronger teams the same way uh, in the sense of like having a, a you know a, an expected outcome. Right. The the question really is if uh, if the opponent's rating is uncertain or the opponent's team is uncertain. Then what's the impact on the rating changes? And so that that's the place where the where Glico is much better at, at uh, addressing uh, that kind of but situation. But would you can? But it uses uncertainty. But would so would you compute uncertainty for a team that only played two good teams very differently than it, than the uncertainty for a team that played ten good teams? Well, so so in Glico, it, it doesn't quite get in at that level. I mean, I so see. so if it, if a team is uh, you know say like a strong team has only played twice, or or, or say a team has played twice and they've defeated. A strong team, then um, you know you, you'd have uh, you know you'd have it reflected in the Glico system by that team having still a pretty uncertain rating, and it probably would be more uncertain than if they defeated somebody you know some team that was about at their level. I see. Listen, um, you know, so so the so the standard error that gets computed is mm-hmm. definitely a function of the you know the rating of the opponent. You know, the kind of the more unusual the result, the less certain the um, you know the standard error is going to be. Excellent. Mark, uh, we, so listeners, I'll, we, I'll just mention one more thing. Just uh, the, okay. the, the place, the place where uh, Glico is actually fairly widely used now is uh, in online gaming, typically because in in these uh, online leagues of of uh, like first person shooters or um, League or, of Legends or yeah, something. Are you talking like about that. video games? Ah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Basically, like video, yeah, video games, online games. Um, I mean, they don't have to be like you know video games. They could just be like kind of online strategy games. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glico actually has a very strong presence. Uh, and again, that you know, Glico is solving a problem that that Elo can't solve. Can't is, solve, right? Yeah, kind of. That it. is something. That is a topic that we have have avoided for the most part here on Wharton Moneyball, and maybe we'll get into it. But listen, we are you are listening to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM one eleven. We have been talking to Mark Glickman, who is a professor at Harvard University and uh, and uh, the originator of the Glico method of of uh, evaluating <laughs> performance. Um, but he's also the editor and author of of a recent book on handbook of, of statistics in sports and we wanted yeah. to ask you a little bit about that book um, sure. how that come together and and uh, and what's its origins and what's in it right well so um, one fine day uh, Jim Albert who um, is my predecessor of, of in, as the editor-in-chief of journal quantitative analysis in sports and you know all-around good guy um, I think we were sitting around one day and I think we were saying um, you know it's about time that we have a new book on um, you know statistics in sports uh, you know, there's really not that much out there. Um, you know, there there are a couple. Um, you know, there've been a couple uh, books in statistics and sports over the years. But I guess uh, what happened is when we were talking, we we kind of hit upon the idea that we wanted to have a book that really presented like sort of the current cutting edge of what's being done in a lot of different. Um, you know, a lot of the major sports and a couple other you know non-major sports. Um, in in um, you know kind of. Giving people, uh, you know, a sense for like, you know, what's the state of the art right now, um, and what's 
what are the likely kinds of uh, directions things are going to go, um, you know, going forward. So we ended up um, thinking, you know, we, we thought about this book. Um, Jim Albert had been working with uh, the this um, editor to the stars, uh, John Kimmel at, um, at, at CRC Press. Um, where so we we ended up sitting down, and you know, he was explaining to us that they have this uh, handbook series. So that you know, the handbook series has has been covering all kinds of uh, statistics topics. And the way these books are written is that we end up, or the books end up getting. Uh, you know, authors to write chapters, and, and it's just uh, uh, basically collections of, of different authors writing about different topics, and it's bundled into one book. So we talked to uh, John Kimmel about it and decided to, you know, go forward. We we ended up bringing in uh, Tim Swartz and Ruth Koenig, uh, both of whom are, are excellent sports statisticians, uh, and we the four of us decided to, um, you know, uh, put this book together. Each of us was you know, divided the the load of finding um, basically we, we we're each going to find five uh, five uh, authors to write chapters and then each of the four of us would write one. So I wanted to just get, get into it. So the structure of the book is essentially organized by sport, right. um, and you you sort of talk about the main accomplishments at each sport and each level. But who's the audience directed at? So if you read some of the topics, evaluation of batters and base runners, that's the first uh, article in baseball. And your your topic is uh, estimating team strength in the NFL. Right. Who's who's your audience for this book? I mean, I guess we think of our audience as possibly people who are like two two main types: people who are kind of currently uh, working in, say, the sports industry, which could be you know like teams or or people that are working at consulting uh, firms that that consult for sports analytics. Um, but so people that that kind of need to be aware of you know what the state of the art in sports analytics is uh, to kind of bring them up to speed. And we also um, we're hoping that the book can also be used as uh, you know kind of like a textbook for um, you know for advanced courses in uh, sports analytics. In fact, I've I've already talked to a couple people uh, who've been asking me if the if the book would be appropriate for that use, and I explained to them that that's really what we had in mind with the book. Um, so it, it really isn't kind of intended as a as a place um, to learn about you know the state of the art of sports statistics, and you know kind of aiming it at at a you know, sort of a, a moderately advanced level. So we're assuming that people are pretty comfortable with, um, you know, the, the appropriate math and statistics background. So it, it's not so, geared so at an not, intro level statistics. Read on the toilet. No, no, but it, but it, it sounds like it would be something that that you could teach at an upper level statistics in an undergraduate course. As a, yeah, as I a, think it's. I mean, ideally, in fact, the way I'm going to probably use it uh, in the fall is is to use it as a uh, uh, as the basis of like a, a sports statistics seminar. So the mm-hmm. idea would be. Um, you know, like different students are going to end up presenting uh, different chapters in, in the in the book, and that'll generate some discussion. And and you know, with any luck, that'll also d- discuss uh, or generate some discussion about different directions for for research. You know, pursuing other yeah research topics. Yeah, we have but, actually a, a baseball research seminar here at University of Pennsylvania, and mm-hmm. there's talk about starting a more general one of sports analytics. And this this book sounds like it could oh, be yeah, an... a great book to suggest that you. Just... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice price tag on each it's one. Really, it's, yeah. It's... <laughs> <laughs> it's priced just right. It's actually kind of for for its size. It's actually pretty lightweight. Uh-huh. <laughs> is there Kindle really, edition? Really, really good binding. Yeah, yeah. No, is there a Kindle edition? I mean, that what do you got? Actually, I don't. I don't think so. That's a good question. Yeah, yeah. you got to make an advance over I, I'm there. I'm pretty sure. I th- no, you know what? I, I mean, I think there's a. Dig- I'm a I want to say there's a digital version. I don't know. 
Um, yeah, so, so I guess there's certainly it, one in China by now. I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, I think actually I think there was one in China before the hard copy came out. Yeah, so, yeah. that's probably true. <laughs> so is there is there any one of the so we we basically have time for one last question. So sure. uh, is there any one specific topic in the book or one of the research papers that they particularly should we should look towards? Or well, I, I'll, I'll to, to be um, completely frank, I, the the chapter. So I handled um, I brought in the the four basketball chapters and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of the NFL ones, one of the NFL ones being mine. The one that, that to me, I, I think is um, that, that's kind of the standout and, you know, I think does a really good job of representing the future is uh, Luke Bourne's chapter um, on... on uh, Studying you know, basketball tracking. through the lens of player all, all, tracking data? Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's all the player tracking stuff. I mean, it's a really nice synopsis of where things are with our player tracking data. And, you know, he and his group have really... You know, completely led that that field. Yeah, uh, and we we, we end up years. discussing it on our show quite a bit. I mean, it really is yeah. kind. Of, it's not just the state of the art in, in basketball evaluation, but it's really the state of the art across sports. It's one of the main reasons basketball, yeah, and, I think, and, has and, jumped ahead of a lot of the other sports. Yeah, and and, and frankly, I mean, you know, uh, you know, Luke has gotten quite a bit of recognition in, in the whole Bayesian community, um, not just in sports. So, uh, you know, for this this work, so uh, you know, th- this is really cutting edge stuff. And and Luke, and, it, and you're very lucky to have him contribute this chapter. But it's interesting because Luke, we, we talked about him was in the, he was in the newspapers a couple weeks ago yep. for having essentially retired or semi retired from yeah, academia. I think the deal is he's he's uh, um, I think he's taking like a, a leave. So I don't, I don't think he's hundred uh, percent given up his uh, academic. Game. But he. Has has moved to the Sacramento Kings, at least in the short term, to yep. essentially head up analytics at a basketball, professional basketball team. I hope he yep. got a good uh, a signing bonus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the day has what, not what quite yet arrived. <laughs> the day hasn't quite arrived yet that uh, sports analytics are, um, individuals are, are commanding the salaries that exist in data science jobs uh, mm-hmm. all over the country, all over the world now. And, and get closer. Uh, it's get, but it's got to be, I mean, this is interesting because typically when a, a team invites uh, applications for, for op- job opportunities in sports, they tend to get 50, 60 of them. Um, it's a dream job for someone, and mm-hmm. you, you, the, the market has got to price itself up a little bit. But listen, Mark, it's been great having you on the show. We've been talking yeah, to you fun. about getting you on for some time, and it was finally terrific to have you finally come on the show and, and talk to us, um, and I really appreciate that. And we'll and next time we'll talk yeah. more about the Journal of Quantitative and Analysis of Sports yeah, um, and so other yeah, things. Love to, love to talk again. So we will be... Uh, Concluding our first hour at the after our break, we'll be interviewing Sean Foreman of the Baseball Reference, and we look forward to talking about baseball. Talk to you after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. To Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Professor Adi Weiner of the Department of Statistics of the Wharton School of Business of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm joined in the studio with my colleague, Shane Jensen, also from the Department of Statistics of the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And we've been talking about sports and going through all the goings-on in the world of sports, talked about through an analytics lens. That's what our show is all about. Moneyball is the essentially the interaction, interplay between statistics, analytics, and sports. And we do that every week. Um, every now and then we, we make a, a foray into business, as af- after all is the business radio channel. And we just completed a nice half-hour interview with Mark Lickman, who is an old friend and colleague of both Shane and mine. And he's one of the leading uh, analysts in statistical sports. And our next interview is with 
Sean Foreman, who is the founder of Baseball Reference, and he is the uh, um, the owner of a company called now called Sports Reference. And Sean is here in the studio because he is actually a, a, a local to Philadelphia, and we want to welcome Sean into the studio. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. It, it certainly is great to have someone in the studio. It's much uh, more uh, engaging for us than on on the telephone, although the telephone tends to work pretty well as well. I'm just going to harken back to the old days. Um, I was a baseball statistical nut, and I remember vividly the day that my father gave me a giant book, the most the biggest book I, I owned was the Baseball Encyclopedia. And I would stare about at that overnight. No one owns one anymore, thanks to a company like yours. So tell us about that. Uh, yeah, so we, we basically, um, I've got about 12 of those encyclopedias in my <laughs> office, actually. So, um, yeah, in 2000. Uh, so I, I'd worked for a site uh, in, a, in a book called The Big Bad Baseball Annual, which was kind of a niche uh, publication uh, that kind of predated the uh, baseball prospectus uh, books. And I, you know, I, I was... It was 2000. It was 1999-98. I was in graduate school at the University of Iowa, so I was one of the few people who had pretty good internet access at that time. And I uh, was getting into web design. I was into sabermetrics, and I thought, you know, were you studying computers or were you studying uh, statistics? I was. I was in the uh, applied math and computational sciences program at Iowa. So I, um, so, was doing a lot of programming and and a lot of things like that. And uh, and baseball stats were a lot more interesting to me than protein folding. And so I, uh, I started working uh, on, on various projects, and, and I thought, you know, th- this giant book would be a lot more useful if it were on, the, on a, a website. <laughs> you know, you could go to Joe DiMaggio's page. You it's hard could, to flip pages and add numbers, that, right? Well, yeah. th- that and, and also, like, getting from Joe DiMaggio to his teammates back yeah. to another teammate took, you know, several minutes of uh, thumbing through the th- 2,000 pages. So I, I, um, I basically... You know, had that in the back of my mind, and then I finally found a web host that had 300 megabytes of space. Ooh, for, wow, uh, for, for like $300 for, or something. Well, 20, it was 25 <laughs> bucks a month, so I could, on my graduate student salary, could could manage that. So I, I um, basically avoided my thesis for a couple months and and uh, and built this basic site. Where did was, you get the data? Was the data in a ba- database already? So or? I, I, I can say this now, but at the time, so um, uh, Pete Palmer uh, created Total Baseball. Uh, along with John Thorne and others and Gary Gillette. And they had put a CD-ROM in the back of Total Baseball. And a gentleman named Sean Lawman uh, had cracked the CD-ROM and put up the Baseball Archive, which basically just had the basic stats uh, and, you know, bio tables, stuff like that. So I took that cracked data from Palmer and, and built the basic site from that. Now we actually, I will say, just for the record, we do license our data from Pete Palmer, the, the baseball seasonal data. And, and some but so, data. well, actually, so I've done a lot of baseball research, and I know Shane has, just to put the, the, the lay of the land, there's something called the Layman Database. Is that right. the same yes, Layman that you yes, talk yes, about? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which is updated annually, and that has incredible amount of rich, very nicely organized yeah. and free data. data. Right. Um, there's something called RetroSheet as well, right. which is which is where we when we did our a lot of our analysis uh, for some of the baseball work that Shane and I has done together, we got it from RetroSheet. Um, of course, the more modern data is purchased through companies like Stats and Baseball Info Solutions. Right. Mm-hmm. So, how does Baseball Reference sort of fit into that landscape? Well, we we use all of those. Uh, I mean, I really view that our main main um, the main thing that we provide to the audience uh, is kind of an integration of all of these different sources in a in a really easy to use. Package so we, 
you know, we use RetroSheets. We have box scores back to 1913. We use Baseball Info Solutions. So we have defensive runs saved. We have current season data. So we have all of that data uh, that's combined into a single single source. So you can really find everything you want there. Uh, can you find raw data? So, I mean, so one of the things that RetroSheet has, it'll tell you sort of play-by-play. Play. It has right. all that information. Can you get that on the Baseball Reference well, site? Well, so we're, we're not really uh, targeting the uh, power user ah. who wants to, you know— but we don't we don't necessarily discourage those people. I mean, I look at my server logs and I see all of them scraping our site constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, I have two today. students upstairs right now uh, scraping your website. Well, we, we, we've off. I, I actually have written programs to like mess up the data for scrapers. Yeah, in I different know. Ways, but we haven't we haven't actually <laughs> implemented them because uh, it ended up breaking other stuff. But that's a long story. So I, I mean, we but we don't make any money from those people mm-hmm. really. So that that's not you know. If you go to our site, we, you, you do see we have, like, a download into Excel um, tool on there. We have – you can get it as CSV. But we're not, we're not in the um, – you know, we license a lot of our data, so we're technically not even allowed to, like, you know, re, repackage it and, and provide it for big downloads for other people. So, I mean, RetroSheet – why would we recreate what RetroSheet does mm-hmm. when they've already done it, well, done it so well? they have. On the other hand, RetroSheet is a little user-unfriendly. I mean, maybe a lot user-unfriendly. Well, if you're a graduate student, though, those are uh, those are skills you really yeah, should be Yeah, I mean, I mean if you're at the right? point of I mean, scraping that's... data off yeah. the web anyway, probably you could handle the handle right well, retrospect. that's true that's true yeah. um, um, but these are but it's what's happening is increasingly just I've noticed in my own teaching and it, it's it's coming down to the high school level the, the students with just rudimentary skills that are growing and computing right. and statistics are really interested in digging into the raw data because it's available yeah. right. and what a better place to, to, to learn technique with this this so it that's why I say the baseball reference it's really nicely packaged for right. them uh, that other the other stuff is a little oh, harder of course yeah of course. I just think you know as, as as we kind of move forward the generation I mean, people, the computational skills of the, of the younger people growing up. I, mean, I sound like an old man here. Yeah. And I, I, guess I, I guess I am with respect to this. But, I mean, I remember when I first started teaching here at Penn, you know, among our graduate students, there was this big debate. Oh, you know, we really have to make sure that they know a programming language by the time they're done grad school. That is a laughable debate now because every single one of them come in th- like to college knowing a programming language. Well, actually, what's happening? I, I would just I'll segue into that. I'm th- I'm seeing something that there are those who can program yeah. and have and are way more. I mean, yeah. as you describe, and then there's a whole set of people who know nothing. Mm. It's and and what we're finding here at Penn actually is that you got to give the people who know nothing something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, can see that. I mean, the number one thing I get a lot of questions like, "How do I break into the business?" And I, I'm not necessarily the best person to ask because I'm I'm running a small bu- small mm-hmm. business out of out of a church and. In Mount Airy, uh, so yeah. So tell me, tell us about your actual business. So you're where are you located? You're located in so Philadelphia. We're, so we're located in Philadelphia. I, after graduate school, I was doing the uh, side on the side, and I worked six years at St. Joe's uh, teaching math and computer science uh, at St. Joe's here in Philly, and uh, got tenure, quit, and uh, and went and and uh, decided to do it full time. So we've grown slowly over over uh, over time. We're up to seven full time employees, uh, six of whom are in Philly, and our office varies between you know two to five people in the office every day so it's it's um you know just small office in a in a church that's two blocks from my house so it's it's I, i've tried to set up things uh to minimize my complications yeah. so, so, so been, we've talked a lot about sort of like with regards to baseball because that's obviously audienized like kind of main area of sports mm-hmm. expertise it's also an original but, but right. sports it's sports reference i mean you you guys do basketball reference you do right. hockey reference 
And, I mean, I've, I've certainly found hockey reference and basketball reference very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. Like, sort of like, because you clearly are paying attention to who logs in and stuff like that, right. what, what's the kind of usage across sports? How are people, you know, what, what's really getting the attention in, uh, at sports reference? Right. So, his, historically, baseball is number mm-hmm. one. It's still number one. But it's, it's basketball is actually growing very quickly. And, and, and year over year, baseball is pretty level. It's not, you know, 5 to 10 percent growth year over year. But basketball is 20, 30 percent every year and 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 um so i would say right now we're probably like uh baseball's 40 percent basketball's 25 30 football is 20 and then the rest are college mm-hmm. sports and and uh and hockey so yeah. hockey's still which i can't quite put my finger on you know but i mean if, if somebody figures out why hockey lags so much behind the other sports the major sports as far as that links goes they they need to tell me i right. I, I mean i've thought about it and there's various reasons Various aspects of the game that I think are harder to quantify, and but right. there's really no excuse for it. I think it's somehow like as an entire industry, there's just kind of like less buy-in. Do you cover right. soccer? Well, so we're, we're we're I've been telling people we're going to do a soccer site for the last five years. So I, I we we're going to do a soccer site, but when when, when I get it done is when mm-hmm. we get it done is going to be another question. So I, I've. I mean, soccer's actually become a fairly important sport to me personally. So I I really want to do it, but. I, I remember, like, in in the course of researching what a soccer site would take, finding that there were more clubs listed on Wikipedia uh, worldwide than there are players who have ever played Major League Baseball. So there are, like, 19,000 clubs listed on English-speaking yeah. Wikipedia. Clubs and meaning professional-level profe- professional soccer clubs. teams. Yes, and not, we're not necessarily going to try and cover all of them, obviously. But, you know, you're talking, you know, every country— uh, has multiple leagues and they all change. Teams all change and every there's something year. like twelve teams in Rio de Janeiro. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you, yeah, you know, I mean, thirty-five it's, it's, teams right, in London. And I mean, and, I mean, yeah. so, and you could be like, oh, well, who cares about that? I mean, half those, <laughs> you know, I mean, no. So, so you in size, in size, nobody can can argue yeah. that in, internationally right. the interest is, is is vast. But the reason why baseball got this started is, and I, we brought the conversation around that baseball encyclopedia. The concept of statistics is as dominant as a dominant actor in sports originates with baseball mm-hmm. yeah. right. and soccer right. doesn't have that tradition True. so it's not the size it's to penetrate into the community the but idea a, that statistics can tell you something yeah no and, and it's true that obviously because of the actual kind of you know continuous aspect of soccer you know there's less kind of analytics that you can kind of take out of a game so that but but on the flip side i think the reason baseball was you know the kind of the, the first one in on this and the reason baseball still is such a quantitative sport is Various aspects of the game do lend themselves very well to quantitative allowance, but also the community of people who are into baseball, it also selects, it's highly correlated with the community of people who are into history. Like baseball, yeah. history is tremendously important to baseball, and that is something that is very common with soccer. The people who are into soccer are very into history. And are they, they really? Yeah, no. I mean, but, I, but how, I, do you, how do you describe it? Because yesterday we were. Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I mean the kind of debates of like Messi versus Maradona and stuff like that. I mean, like the oh, it's it, huge. Are they substantive? And how could a, how can a website like yours help resolve well, these things? I, I'm not sure that we're it, that would be that would be challenging. I, I think there are you know, well, in ter- in terms of what we might do. I mean, Wikipedia is probably going to have things at the level that most fans are going to be looking for for an, an argument between Messi and Maradona. But I, I mean, from our perspective. You know, obviously, it's a huge worldwide popular sport. Player movement is tremendous because players are bought and sold um, constantly. So players are moving from Brazil to uh, to England, or or moving from 
um, from Belgium to Italy. Is anyone tracking this? Well, there there are people tracking this. There are some already people already in there, but it's it's there aren't many that are going looking at it as a kind of a worldwide worldwide thing. There are a lot. You know, most people are focusing on Premier League, um, Syria, uh, La Liga, and those those sorts of leagues. So we'll see. I I am. Um, it's a huge problem, and it, but it's one that I think would be very interesting to to tackle. And 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 um, it's, soccer has a lot of very interesting subparts of it that are much different than other sports, especially in the U.S. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that uh, the history side of it is so important to 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 sports. I mean, last last night. Uh, I think it was two days ago, or 538 published an article, actually came, I think, from The Ringer, talking about um, this ongoing controversy, what is causing the home run surge Mm -hmm. in baseball. Yeah. And I was trying to explain, maybe we'll talk about that, but uh, the actual controversy, but I was trying to explain to to, uh, my son why it matters. Yep. He, he was thinking, this is great. Uh, Aaron Judge, home runs, home runs. Bellinger, wow, this is right. fantastic. Um, but, and I was saying it's, I think it's, it's not good for the game because historically it's so important to, to, to baseball fans to be able to compare across errors, eras in a, some s- sense of constancy. Yeah. Now, of course, players are, are, have to be better and bigger yeah. and stronger, but that's both sides of the plate. But the idea that the parks are, are similar, the, the ball is similar, and that you can kind of talk about a home run record for today and compare it to a home run record of yesterday. And if the balls are really changed, that's kind of bad. That's that's uh, that's kind of the the equipment side of the PDE. Yeah, and we and we have a problem with that. Are you guys? Uh, do you guys track uh, uh, baseball or in a, sort of that level of, of information? Well, I mean, we have we obviously have. Um you know, we have like league-wide averages for every mm-hmm. season broken out, so you can very clearly see. You know, I, I do you have the Statcast data. We, we do not. Too, well, I, no, MLB is not. They're not giving that particularly out. sharing the Statcast data. I mean, that's um, you know, I hopefully someday uh, some of that will become available, and 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 uh, I'm always kind of you know needling them when I when I see them and and encouraging them to make it available. If only, I mean, what I really want to see with the Statcast data is not necessarily being able to do like. Like a you know an up to the date leaderboard on this guy is doing this, but you could validate previous techniques using Statcast. So you know what current non-Statcast defensive metric correlates most strongly with a Statcast based defensive met- metric, and that would give you a good idea. Well, historically, we should use this metric to say. Yeah. Um, Brooks Robinson was, you know, this compared to Greg Nettles or, you know, people like that. I see. So just to unpack this. So StatCast gives you the information on how hard the ball was hit and what angle. And does it even uh, – not the, the public versions don't tell you where its trajectory, but I think the private versions do. The one that's still proprietary will tell you the actual path of the ball, um, where it landed and coordinate space. Well, yes. It will definitely tell you where the ball landed. And, I mean, more importantly, it tells you where the fielders are. So yeah. they, I mean they're they're tracking where the fielders are, so you know initial position, final position. Um, oh, there is a debate about Audie, that. Yeah, I'm not even sure as a, as a tra- as a traditionalist baseball fan, and uh, why would you even be interested in this data? We can't compare it to. I mean, we don't have it for the 1956. No, I know, but this what what Sean was telling us I mean, that was that was a snark, everyone. Yeah. Um, but the point is, is that if you can use this data to really finally crack. A defensive value, yeah. and then correlate it with measures that you can go back right. historically. You can find the the, the multiplicity. I mean, just we can talk about but, this, but, but how teams are using this data is to do things like defensive shifting, no, which makes, that may, makes which a, makes the sport of today. But shifts are less comparable are, to the sports of uh, to the sport right. of like you know thirty years ago. But I, I don't. It's funny because that's exactly the point that that my son made yesterday. Yeah. He says, "Look at the shifts. That's changed there, there, the game." There's both technological and actual strategic. 
innovation that like but shifts are not our shifts have been around since Ted Williams and probably oh even my earlier. goodness dude. Well, but not, are not, you not real I, at, 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 it's not like, in it's the not game like changing way idea. that they are now no, right, come right. on well, now we use them on almost every player right, uh, you know right. I mean we're using we're, shift see, we're seeing 500 times more shifts now than we did when Ted Williams was well playing, they, they so, seem I to mean, use it on just about every player well right so I mean that that obviously is very makes it very different like when you look at like you know things like batting average on balls and play and stuff like that that statistic means something incredibly different now than it did even 15 years ago right what do you think sean does uh, it i i'd have to look at that i i um because now the players are standing where the ball actually goes well more well, or less high probability I, 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 with higher probability with higher probability i yeah I, i'm not it, it's I, i'd have to look at that a little more yeah. before but I'd players are also that. trained to, to differently than than they are now i mean there's a lot of skills that that were that were highly regarded that have been lost, like bunting skills, like mm-hmm. spray hitting skills, opposite field hitting skills. No, no, I, I think we're, we're right now, we haven't achieved equilibrium. I think that hitters will adjust, but I think right now we are in a phase where hitters are, have not been able to keep up with the defense. And maybe that's part of the reason we're not seeing, you know, as many balls in play. Definitely balls in play are at an all-time low, right? So, so well, tell me- right. I, I mean, I think the game is, I, every, everybody's figured out that you got to hit the ball really hard yeah. in order to get get a hit. And so, you know, that's why strikeouts are up, strikeouts are up and they've also come to realize that you know double plays are not i mean that that basically you're better off hitting the ball as hard as you can rather than trying to just make contact because it leads to double plays yeah, that's right. reached on errors are incredibly rare because the fielders are so darn good and so it's you know it's a situation where the hitter's approach has definitely changed where i have to get a specific pitch in a specific place so i can hit it hit a line drive which has a 850 batting average compared to a ground ball which has a 175 batting average yeah. so or a fly ball that has a 120 batting average unless you hit a home run so so yeah so i mean the hitters have definitely changed their approach and that's why we're doing you know three true outcomes uh you know walks home runs or or strikeouts instead of putting the ball in play so um so yeah i, I mean there, I, I take your point to some degree. I agree that it's possible that we won't be able to validate other defensive metrics using the Statcast data, but I, I think there will be something illuminative. In so, that, so, what that, defensive measures do you actually quote, and where do you get them from? Well, we so we license defensive runs saved from uh, from uh, BIS Baseball Info Solutions, and uh, and so we use the, that's kind of the part of our WAR metric uh, that the. Uh, defense, so you you actually have your own WAR metric that you yes, you invented. Right. Uh, it... So we so we use I I I don't want to get into a a, a, a war shot, a, a, a war, war over war, war. <laughs> a war of wins over replace wins above replacement. Just, but... just for our listeners, I mean just just to, just to inform, war is an interesting statistic. Um, it's 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 because it's a it's almost a universal statistic you can, across certainly in baseball across all players. It's wins that you add over essentially a replacement level. Someone who you can get and, for and free. I mean it, it, it's an attempt to sort of try and qua- kind of capture with a single number the. All of the different aspects right. that a player, and you right. know, integrate a, fielding in right. with base running, in with hitting. It's hard, though. It's very hard, but it's also being used. You're seeing equivalents of that in other sports mm-hmm. as well. It's it's yeah. it started in baseball, as often things do, and then has percolated right. to other sports. They don't often call it wins or something called win shares. That's another idea. Right. You'll see that. But you're seeing this idea of integrating everything into a single number, and all the sports kind of want to well, do that. I, I mean, Pete Palmer did that 35 years yeah. ago in total baseball. So it's not. It's definitely not a new idea that we. Started. We, I mean, we borrowed the, um, the so Sean Smith, um, who went to work for a team uh, 10, 15, 10, 12 years ago, we, we, 
he uh, worked with us to build our framework, and he started it. So some people call it our war because it's rally war. He was mm-hmm. went by the moniker Rally Monkey on online. So, um, <laughs> so if you see our war or B war, that's There's baseball reference. Numbers. And then yeah. Fangraphs is the other one that that a lot of people uh, cite. I, I see ours. His baseball perspective has one too. They, also. Have, they have warp. Yeah, wins wins above base replacement player. I mean, I see ours as being more descriptive of what happened, and I see Fangraphs as being more predictive as to what might be, uh, or, or what the what the skill like level involved. Like a retrospective versus prospective yes, sort yes, of, yes. right? Okay, right, because we start with runs scored for, um, you know, we start with runs allowed yeah. for pitchers, and then we work out how good the defense was behind them, how many fly balls, ground balls they allowed, um, you know, unearned runs they allowed, you know, park factors, quality yeah. of the offense they faced. And then work back from there. They start with uh, dips, ERA, and and yeah. and then work forward from there. Yeah. So so, that, so what's so this is actually the big. Uh in, in all sports and statistical analysis is really is the big dissection or the bifurcation. You either are thinking about it retrospectively as what happened on the field or yeah. prospectively as what will happen. And in baseball, it was discovered I mean, some time ago that, that a certain set of statistics are more useful for making forecasts, even though they don't really describe what happened yeah, in the past. Right. Right. So RBI is the classic technique yeah. that has really very little reflection. It clearly has a lot to do with scoring, but it's <laughs> it not as lot. predictive right. it tells as, you what as happened, something right? like, you know, <laughs> How often you get on base, right? So, so, and that that the underlying metrics, and, and this is true for both hitters and pitchers, particularly pitchers. If you look at their strikeout rate, their fly ball rate, their home run rate, um, that pretty, and their walk rate, that pretty much summarizes what um, was is going to be useful going forward. So, a pitcher could have had a great game, given yeah. up no runs, only one hit, um, but you look at their underlying measures and say, well, he put the ball in the air a lot. There were there was very few contact. There's lots of walks. This person had just had a great lucky game, and that's that's what's 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 really been happening, and and there are two versions of war: one kind of more retrospective, and one more right. prospective. And the, and the sports are all doing it. Are you provi- so you provide a war for baseball? Do you provide something yes. like that for the other sports? Yeah, we have uh, so we have win shares for basketball. Uh, we also have VORP for value over replacement player for basketball. So we have a couple things on the basketball side. We have what we call point shares on hockey. Uh, football is kind of a we have approximate value which mm-hmm. uh, oh, we yes. use, use on which is yeah. very calm it's i'm amazed at how often that's used in like draft research and stuff oh, like well that's that, that's so. actually what i was going to bring up because this is one of the great utilities of these sort of all the complete measures right. of performance yeah. is if you want to do draft forecasts and this is something yeah. that, that everyone's talking about right now during the drafts yeah. the basketball baseball drafts yeah. football drafts happened earlier is try to figure out well, who's going to produce in the future well what statistic you want to look at and these and these yeah that's right and I mean like yeah, it's a challenge because I mean you, even if you want to be very sophisticated and principled about you know I want to look historically at you know how well somebody's draft order or, or a particular college uh, measure correlates with NFL performance. Well, what do you mean by NFL performance? That's right. Then all that's of a sudden, you, value. and then you know you could do you know this huge kind of multivariate kind of picture of what your NFL career means, or you could try and boil it down to a single number. No, right? you and approximate so- value is kind of one of the things that's used commonly for that. And right? WAR is used in baseball. What baseball right. reference? I know yep. uh, this is data that that our students have been digging into just almost as we speak. They have uh, you have all the draft fifty rounds of drafts for that's right. How many years back do you have every it? year? Every year. Every year. Where'd you get that? Did you have to type uh, it in? <laughs> there was, uh, you know, like I said, every, everything we do is kind of an integration of various, uh, you know, we we looked at what uh, MLB had, we looked at what Baseball America had, we looked at what some other sites had and kind of tried to integrate them all together into into one database. We now work with Pete Palmer and Ted Tarosi. 
uh, you know, with, on that data. And so it's always, you know, we get you, – you wouldn't believe the emails we get from people like, well, I was drafted in the 1972 draft and you have my position wrong in high school, you know, and stuff <laughs> like that. So, I, I mean, we – you know, and we try to verify them. And, and so we – I mean, we spend so many hours, you know, just – because people find us and they want to have stuff correct, so you know we get tons of emails from from people on things like that. So it's always everything goes into it. Yeah. Into it. So you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM 111. We're joined in the studio with Sean Foreman, who is the founder of uh, Baseball Reference. It's now called Sports Reference, which is actually a, a Philadelphia-based company. And, and Shane Jensen is joining me uh, in the studio. We're both professors in the Department of Statistics here at Wharton. Um, we only have a, a few minutes left to kind of wrap up what's going on in uh, in the Baseball Reference community. We, I know that that I and, and Shane, who, who love to bring this kind of data to our classroom work, yeah. are quite indebted to, to what Baseball reference and and sports reference in yeah. general has produced um i do think that that sport baseball reference the baseball reference component of it is far more advanced um and, and in terms of accessibility and that's probably because of baseball statistics is still five years from now basketball reference five, i bet you will be it's, talking it's pretty about, close yeah. now already yeah. i mean we, we've got on off we've got shooting we've got yeah. all that kind of stuff so yeah. how, so let's let's turn our attention to basketball one of the mm-hmm. things that uh, that we we've been talking about we talked about with mark lickman is the is the introduction of all this camera based information which track the location of the players, location of the balls. The latest trend will give you the whole position of the player electronically. Right. Yeah. And that's produced, uh, Luke Bourne has produced these expected value uh, changes throughout expected the game. Expected point value cal- calculations yeah. where, where players can be evaluated. Like if a player goes down the court and is double teamed, that actually is something that you can kind of calculate the value of, as a po- even if right. he's not actually involved in a scoring play or in a scoring okay. attempt. Which is incredible statistical analysis. We were talking earlier in our show about uh, Philadelphia's draft choice, and in fact... His his statistics themselves are just not that that terrific, but based on the video information that you can okay. see, they looks better because of all that information. Is that going to come online, or are you working towards it? Uh, well, I, I mean, it's you know the leagues. I mean, to some degree, the leagues now I think are trying to compete with us on on the stats piece. You look at what the NBA has done with uh, stats.nba.com, and 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 so, you know, I I, I suspect that we're probably not. Um, uh, it, I mean, it's always dicey. I mean, that that stuff is on available online, so that I know people like your students are probably scraping it and mm-hmm. trying to analyze it and stuff. I, I we try to steer clear of doing that on uh, ourselves. Um, but you know, if there's relevant data, we're trying to acquire it and 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 use it on the use it on the site. So. so yeah, and, and I mean, like you guys have kind of the advantage of having the historical record because I mean, you know, to right. the extent that you want to kind of compare across eras, and I mean, you won't be able to do that necessarily with this expected point value type calculations. Right. But you guys provide the framework for sort of like. As you were sort of saying, like, you know, taking some of these more modern, advanced statistics and trying to correlate them with whatever they correlate with right. in history so right. that you can make these players more comparable. I, and, you know, I, I and I love the advanced stuff. I mean, that's where I got my start. That's what my interest, you know, I was, was most interested in that. But, I mean, from a business standpoint, probably 85 percent of our basketball users are just trying to look up what Dwight Howard's scoring average was last year. Right. Why, why are they traded, using that, so. not ESPN? Or, or Well, because, I mean, one is we're far easier to use, in my opinion, far mm-hmm. easier to use than they are. I and, can back and, that and, up. And second off, we're pretty good at SEO, so we show up first in Google. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's kind of... Uh, kind of the so the, you know so this is actually a business radio show uh, serious uh, okay. XM 111's business radio channel and Wharton Moneyball is of course sports analytics I will turn our attention a little bit to business so what okay. is your business model so how so do you make money so we're advertising based so we um, mm-hmm. you know we've grown 
we've had a little bit of of, uh, of venture capital seven eight years ago, but it's mostly organic growth, um, and and it's all at this point it's all banner ads and a little bit of a subscription uh, model kind of bolted on. I'd like to grow the subscription model more. But, you know, last month, Comscore had us at like 7.3 million users, something like that. And and so we, you know, we advertising is not the best way uh, on the web is not the best way to make money. But if you've got enough scale, you can, you know, you can make enough pennies on each user that, that it works out. And so essentially that's how you make money, kind of like Google, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Kind of right, like Google. They're an advertising right, company right too, right? Right behind them, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, the funny thing is the two companies that make the most money in advertising provide none of their own content, right? Facebook and Google produce zero content themselves, right. but, but make all the money, which I wouldn't, which... I'm not gonna. I'm never gonna say anything evil about Google in public. Negative about Google. Isn't that their Google motto? Uh, do first, do no evil. Yeah. Right. I. So, I yeah. I, I. Every night I pray to Google that uh, that uh, you know to stand their good side. But so. we we I say we in the sports analytics community are somewhat indebted to Baseball Reference. It was um, terrific to have you here in the studio with us, it, it, and I I think that debt will continue into the into the future because so much of our access to data has been made possible through through your website at Sports Reference, and I know our students uh, in, uh, in, a few, in a few weeks I'll be having a, a group of about 80 high school students who will be studying with me sports analytics, and right. they, they will turn to all the reference sites like yours to, to, to access data for their projects, and, and, we, and we know at the University of Pennsylvania um, statistics is, is, is bursting at the seams. Sure. Uh, the demand for our statistics classes are through the roof, right. and uh, we'd like to create, we haven't yet created a, a sports statistics class devotionally. It'll probably come from either me or Shane. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> A combined effort, I would like. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, that would be ideal. And 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 the ability to access great, really relevant modern data mm-hmm. is really making this possible. Yeah. And so we we really appreciate you coming to join us here in the studio, uh, Sean. It's been great to have you. Um, and that concludes our third quarter of our show. And we will be taking a short break. And we'll see you afterwards. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball here at Sirius XM 111. We're talking sports and sports analytics here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton School of Business here at the University of Pennsylvania Department of Statistics. And I'm joined with my co-host, Shane Jensen, also of the Statistics Department of the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. We just spent a delightful half hour talking with Sean Foreman, who is the founder of Baseball Reference. And uh, that's a website used to produce yeah. a warehouse. Baseball, for basketball reference, baseball. hockey reference. It's 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 really kind of, you know, as far as looking up historical data and, and kind of current data, it's the, it's the leader it's, of the it's pack. It's the standard. Yeah, it's the standard. Um, so, in our last uh, quarter of our show, we—I know—we have a couple of topics that we could use a little bit more time. And one of the topics that we did avoid, uh, sort of assiduously, to is talk about the baseball season. Yeah, I probably was avoiding How's that. Yeah, going? here we go again. So, a week ago, the Yankees <laughs> were on top <laughs> of the world. I, I'm glad I missed last week. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was it was looking grim for yeah. the Red Sox. So, uh, the, the, so it's interesting. The Yankees much... were forecasted to do poorly, and the Orioles were forecasted to. Do 
do poorly. The first third of the season looked looked the complete reversal. Uh, the Red Sox were supposed to be great, and that has, of course, now caught up with the, with them. The Yankees have lost seven in a row. Um, I hate to say that online. It's been a terrible, terrible week. Uh, losing seven in a row is actually a very unlikely event. Mm-hmm. Even uh, a 50-50 team shouldn't lose seven in a row. And and a 60-40 team, which is a, the, a team that the Yankees were pretending to at least be, yeah. should have uh, astronomically. That shouldn't happen in a well, season. Right. So is this a blip or is this, you know, what is this a, 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 is, a is regression a to the mean? What, what, what's going on with the Yankees? Well, you know I, what? I don't follow them as closely. So, that, so. I mean, that's an interesting question. So statistically, one would have to argue, and this is we've been talking about this historically throughout our show, is that the preseason rankings really have to be a, a, a pull. And the fact that the Yankees were outperforming it, um, at some point you want to give up on the preseason, it becomes the, the data right. is overwhelming. But a third of the season isn't that long. And frankly, the Yankees were projected not to have much pitching. And that seems that's to look... That's bearing out now? That's starting to bear out. They did lose Chapman over this these last seven games. Chapman is, of course, their high-priced par- p- closer. And one of, one of the things that we all know about baseball, to be successful in a modern-day baseball, you need to have a strong bullpen. Yeah, and, and yeah, well, and, and they've got a total scrub backing up Chapman, so that must have been the case. Well, here's the case. No, you're referring to Dylan Betances. Yeah. He's possibly who, who, the— Who would be the greatest—probably, the you know, the best closer on about, like, 25 of the other teams in the league— and it anyway. happens to be the setup man. But Chapman has been out, so Betances has been playing the setup role, I mean the, the closer role, and the biggest problem that I see in the Yankees is Joe Girardi. Joe Girardi still manages like it's 1995. The guy hasn't realized that you don't use your closer the way you, it's, it's been mm-hmm. used or motivated by the save statistic. A lot of the games that the Yankees lost, and last night was an exception where yeah. they were beaten pretty badly, um, they lost by one run. Yeah, and this and the way they and many of them. In fact, I think all but one of the games, Batances wasn't used. Who can forget um, Zach Britton not being used in the, in the playoff game yeah. for the Orioles and Buck Showalter going to the twelfth inning, not using the best pitcher in baseball. Yeah, and I feel like Girardi is still stuck on the idea that you don't bring in your closer unless you have a lead. And do you think that this is sort of like kind of like an area where we? I mean, we talked about defensive shifting as like an area where over the last decade there's been tremendous innovation, and 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 it really has changed the game uh, tremendously. I think um, is kind of is bullpen usage like kind of be the the next sort of you know. Is there going to be a real sea change in baseball, do you think? Because it's, it, you know... You mean it, a return back to the 1980s when no. and 70s when Goose Gossage used to pitch the way I would imagine that you would is the, the right way to use a reliever? Bring them in the 7th, 6th? Bring them in to face the top of the order with men on base? Yeah, no, I guess, I guess sort of like, right. I mean, basically... Uh, using your bullpen, you know, you know, kind of like using the best pitchers in your bullpen, you know, trying trying to guess better at the high leverage situations as opposed to just sort of having these very set roles where you know I'm the ninth inning guy, that guy's the eighth inning guy, etc. Because there are, there are, I mean, you know, it's there are the Joe Girardis out there that do. do do not do that, but you know, I mean, you know, you, you look at some of the. I mean, last year's playoffs were really interesting in 
for many reasons, but one of which is that you saw a bullpen lot of usage. experiment. You know, you saw a lot of variation in bullpen strategy. You know, like like Terry Francona and Joe Madden obviously going at it in the, doing the, in right the World thing. Series, mostly doing the right thing, but also lessons. And even when you do the right thing, you can have wrong outcome, right? Well, I mean, yeah, for example, what happened with the Cubs in, in, in Game 7. You can have the wrong outcome, but nevertheless, I mean, the the right the right process is yes, is, is the right. governing the governing model. And I and I think it's interesting because I was listening to the Yankee announcers, and they were starting to question Gennari on that Girardi on that yeah. point as well. They're saying, "Do you bring in your closer your closer in the seventh inning to face bat, batters one two three, or 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 do you wait till the ninth or the eighth and fa- face six seven eight? Yeah, and you, and you have to recognize that the quality of the opponent matters, and less so the time but i really think that here the yankees lost seven games and they didn't use their best pitcher yeah no i mean i and certainly that's a very stark example um you know, I mean, I, I do know that, you know, we, we, we've had uh, Rick Peterson on many, many times on our show, and he did kind of make the, in response to this sort of like, he the one kind of compelling counter-argument to the sort of idea of you use your best bullpen pitcher whenever you need him the most, is that it is not necessarily easy, like at, say, for example, the start of an inning, to anticipate that that is going to be the high leverage inning. And you can't have even your best. You don't want to strain the best pitcher on your team by having him warm up like every inning. Yes, yeah, so, he potentially could be. Right. So there are considerations right? so, which we stat heads sitting at home don't quite recognize. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of with you on this one, but you know, that is kind of the one counter argument to keep in mind. But this is, uh, but the Yankees' losing streak has certainly turned our attention away from our, our previous conversation, mm-hmm. which is, of course, about home runs. Yeah. Home runs in the Major League Baseball have been most interesting for two reasons. Uh, one specifically, there's more of them than ever. We're on pace. The Major League Baseball is on pace for the most home runs in the season ever, substantially. And this, of course, means it exceeds the Are they also on the pace PED. for the most strikeouts ever? Uh, it could be that yeah. as well. So there's a lot of factors for this. Um, and then the other big story also involving home runs is Aaron Judge. But close behind is this Cody Bellinger guy mm-hmm. who, is, uh, who, is the fa- who broke a record for the fastest number of uh, – fewest numbers of games until 20 home runs, yeah. which I think was held prior to that by Sanchez um, of the Yankees who came up. So he's a rookie. He's a 21-year-old rookie. Aaron Judge is also a rookie, but he's a 25-year-old rookie. Right. To put that in perspective, Bryce Harper and Mike Trout are also 25 years old. Right. So and they've I had mean, five years so, under so, the belt. So, so, you well. know, maybe maybe we, we we let's talk about Aaron Judge a little bit more because he kind of you know again. I'm sure you were following him up through the. You know, you pay very close attention to the Yankees, so you. Well, were he was probably, a top prospect, but he was by no means. But good. the fact that exactly the fact that he's hitting only hitting the major leagues at 25. That's kind of when that. That's about the right pace, actually. Typically, well, okay, but I mean, for he, an average player, right now he's hitting like Mike Trout or Bryce Harper. That's right. So, so um, is is this apparent uh, or or it's out of nowhere? It, it's out of nowhere. And therefore, what should we kind of expect from Aaron Judge going forward? Like, do you guys suddenly, do the Yankees suddenly have one of the best players in baseball, or is he just having an amazing third of a season? I well, mean, obviously, I'm, 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 I need well, a binary uh, answer on that, Audie. You okay, can't, so you can't I, I will. All right, so the information <laughs> that goes backwards would say uh, he, he marched his way through the minors at a nice steady pace. He didn't leap through to yeah. the minors to the majors like Trout, like like Bryant, like like Bryce Harper. 
and and each level he got consistently better. He was he was the reason why he's considered super surprising is that he came up last year. He didn't didn't disqualify himself as a rookie, but last year he basically played terribly. Mm-hmm. And so his war prior to the season was negative. Yeah, he was worse than a replacement player. And so in fact, uh, our friend Neil Payne just wrote an article in Five Thirty Eight talking about uh, he's on pace to win the M- the MVP. Certainly since. on war, he's well ahead of the next highest person. And and what makes that so remarkable is that his cumulative career war prior to this season is negative. Mm-hmm. So no and no never the only time in history is have we had an ML, an MVP candidate come in sort sort of out of the blue was or so surprising by the war metric was Ichiro. But Ichiro only because he came in with zero, right? That's right. But Ichiro came in zero, and and of course, Judge comes in negative. But Ichiro's special because he came from yeah, that, <laughs> Japan. He was not, you know, he's a surprising MVP. Ichiro was only a surprising MVP candidate in his first year in the MLB if you ignored everything except for MLB. That's right. Yeah, so I mean. So it's not exactly the same. So going so, forward. So really what we're saying is what Aaron Judge is doing, at least thus far, is pretty unprecedented. Well, on a piece on pace for 10.4 war, which put that in perspective, is an, one, is an all-time great season. And yeah. certainly a, a, it's uh, like, you know, I mean, Mike Trout does it every year. But like, you know, when you're not Mike <laughs> Trout, that's very impressive. Extremely impressive. And, and well, the thing is, he's also not doing it from center field. One of the reasons why... Um, one of the reasons why Mike Trout does do that every year is he's a solid to to quite above average center fielder, right. and the, the position produces very little offense. Yeah. So his offensive numbers for Mike Trout are not otherworldly. I mean, they're terrific. Yeah. Um, this year they were otherworldly until he got injured. But you you see that kind of offensive numbers from a handful of players in the modern era almost every season. But he was doing it from the center field position yeah. year after year and doing fielding well from that position. Yeah. Um, and that's what made that's what made makes Mike Trout so untouchable on the war scale. But uh, Judge is a solid fielder out and right with a strong arm, good legs. And, and, but one of the things that's so impressive about Judge is, and, and, uh, is he not only hits the ball for home runs, he hits them so far. Yeah. Nearly 500 feet he hit last week. And this turns my attention to what is potentially causing this explosion in power. We talked about it a little Mm -hmm. bit before the break. So it was observed by by ESPN's 538's team. uh, I think it was Rob Arthur was the first person to write about this. And Ben Lindbergh had written about this. Ben Lindbergh, we actually had him on our show. Mm -hmm. Um, He writes for The Ringer. He was also with Baseball Perspective. They observed that after the All-Star break in 2015 the power seemed to be spiking. And it was measurable, and they measured it not only in home run rates, but also in StatCast information. Yeah. They looked at the StatCast data, and there seems to be about a 4 to 5% uptick in velocity off the bat. And they tried to figure out what was causing it. Right. So one of the things that they turned to was the ball. And they did a, a sort of a very informal study, and they, it was inconclusive. They brought in Alan Nathan, as everybody does. He's the physicist who writes about baseball. Yeah. And, of course, recently, Major League Baseball released its, the results of its study, and it said there's nothing different about the ball. Yeah, well, I mean, right. And so what do you think about that? But there's a new article that they, that they wrote. They actually uh, – uh, Mitchell Lickman, who is well known to us for mm-hmm. the uh, – inventor- innovator in the fielding match. In fielding, he created UZR. He actually put some money behind it. I don't know whether he had backers. He went to eBay and he bought 36 baseballs. Uh, 17 were bought in the year prior to... They were put in... They bought them... uh, 
there were game balls. Someone yeah. had gotten balls that were used in the game or nearby the game or a foul yeah. ball um, that in a, in a game in early 2015, before the All-Star break or the end of 2014. And they also bought balls that were purchased after that time and, and a number of balls into 2016. And he sent them to the laboratories to test them. And the results of that just came back. And the results are completely contradict what Major League Baseball has been saying and and if you dig into it what they discovered was is that major league baseball has ridiculously large tolerance bands so what's ah. considered fine the, the the real issues that matter are the core of the ball which is the elasticity the bounciness yeah. of the ball the circumference of the ball and that has to do with air yeah. pressure it's not the weight actually the weight has has very little to do with it the change in, in weight yeah. doesn't impact the velocity but the the circumference a smaller ball is less air resistance goes further and the the, the other big factor is the seam height because that affects how the air, mm-hmm. how the ball travels through the air. And the lower the seam height, yeah. the less uh, air resistance and the ball goes further. And so what they looked at as the averages is enough to add about seven feet on average to um, a batted ball hit at a certain velocity, say 90 miles so per hour. So it's still within the tolerance bands of what the MLB allows, but in a relative sense, the balls are kind of juiced right now. That's right. Now, And they actually write about this and they say it, it explains the three factors together, the circumference, if you, go back, if you go back over, because we know the distribution of all the home runs this season, if you actually subtract off that seven feet or whatever, they do claim you, it adjusts it that, right that back basically on. It gets, you know, it right gets us back to where we were last season. Yeah. Interesting. Now, one of the nice things that they did is they actually put the data on the web. The actual numbers, they had the whole, all the things, yeah. and, and I was able to actually add a little, maybe a little bit of value to it. They, one of the things that they wrote about was they found that this difference was adds about seven feet, um, but they didn't mention, they only had a sample sizes of 17 for one right, and, and 10 I mean, for the I other. Mean, I mean, and before you go into your innovation, I mean, the thing that kind of popped out to me as you were describing this quote-unquote experiment is you'd want to control for these balls they're buying off eBay. You could imagine if most of the balls they bought this season were home run balls versus like last season they bought foul balls or something like that, then almost automatically you're kind bias. of baking a bias into the cake. Right. So There's a real so, confounding. The actual how they, you know, what these balls did is a confounding variable. Right, so that's actually a confounding variable that they were not able to to address. Um, and uh, and so that's something that, that, we're, that we're a little bit... Um, uh, unable to really evaluate how they got the balls this is of yeah. course data collection but one of the things that, that they and, and they did look at is they they have the performance they have the numbers that the laboratory produced for the core which is the measure of elasticity they have the circumference and the seam height and it, there's actually a lot of variance um, one of the things about baseballs is the individual baseball variability is bigger than than you would imagine it's really quite large and and a single baseball could have a variance in about 30 to 40 feet in how far it goes at a given velocity. It's really quite remarkable. Wow. So, Are they using baseballs from different co- – like what's – No, they're all made in, in Costa Rica. Okay. Um, but there's a tremendous – actually quite a bit of interball variation. So if you want to decide whether or not what they've measured is real, you actually have to control for that interball yeah. variation. And one of the, that was what, is what I was able to contribute. Uh-huh. And I discovered that the core, the elasticity, was extraordinarily statistically significant. I mean, they the, the, the Essentially, you look at the at the plots of the data; right. and they're almost non-overlapping. The recent balls have much higher uh, core that pr- produces more elasticity. Interesting, but the seam height uh, difference wasn't wasn't statistically significantly right. different. They're, they are lower today. Um, has to go in one direction, but that difference isn't statistically significant. It yeah. is practically important. 
So if that turns out to be true, it does have a significant impact. You, but do you it's think it's not... intentional on the part of the MLB? We need we need we need the, we need the MLB private server here, <laughs> email, sure private do. email server. See yeah. if this is actually is, is something that they intended to do. I, I wonder. But this, but uh, but it turns out that so what we actually now have a divergence between what is being said by Major League Baseball, mm-hmm. balls are the same, and what the what the inter, the, the the community has actually. Well, I done. think we've got a lot a lot of history that tells us to trust what MLB says about this. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. We're going to do that. Um, anyway, that's that concludes our discussion of baseball. One of the things that we want to conclude our show with is a discussion on the NL and the NBA draft. Yeah. And we actually have um, joining us in the studio is one of our staff members. Uh, Seamus Clancy is, is, is our production assistant for the summer. And he's also an associate editor for Liberty Ballers, which is the Sixers site. This is a Philadelphia um, uh, devoted to to uh, to. to covering the Sixers for SB Nation. And Seamus is, uh, just came into the studio. He actually visited the Sixers training camp this week. And so in our final few minutes of our, of our, of our show today, we want to discuss with Seamus some of his observations. So welcome to the studio, Seamus. Hi, how's it going, guys? Thanks for having me on. No so problem. Saturday, I made my way over to Camden, New Jersey, which the Sixers' new practice facility is. Uh, it's been up there for about a year and a half now. Uh, Markel Fultz was on his way up. He's from Maryland originally, so he drove up straight from Maryland. I think he had planned earlier and the week to be spending that day with the Celtics in Boston because of those trade discussions that ultimately led uh, to the Sixers trading for the first overall pick. He made his way to Philadelphia, uh, went through a quick, quick workout that the media didn't really see much of, uh, sort of played a playground-style around-the-world three-point shooting contest by himself, it seemed like. Uh, Wasn't really a thorough workout, did some coast-to-coast imaginary fast-break opportunities, and that was really it. Uh, then he spoke to Sixers coach Brett Brown for a few minutes in private before having a few moments to spoke with the media. Hmm. So, um, so tell us a little bit about what's going on with this draft. Yeah. Is 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 uh, you know, I mean, the assertion we made, not based on the kind of information that you have earlier in this show, is, is that you know, the anal- It seems like the analytics don't necessarily. Suggested like he's he's worth kind of you know the the, the draft potential that Philadelphia yeah. gave up. I haven't seen anything like I know Kevin Pelton from ESPN frequently does an analytics big board every year. I haven't seen his this year, so I can't comment on that. But I know that for some more traditional stats, Fultz rates very well. He was uh, in the in pull up jumper off the dribble jumpers this season. He. Uh, scored more points per possession than Damian Lillard did as, as a senior at Weber State. So there's a huge age difference there. Fultz just yeah. turned 19 during Memorial Day weekend, so he spent his entire senior season as just an 18-year-old. He's one of the youngest players in this class, on top of probably being you know, the most projectable best player in the class. Uh, there's not a lot of weaknesses in his game. He looks like he has two-way potential as a six-foot four guy with a 6'10 wingspan. Uh, reminds me a little bit of D- D- Dwayne Wade in terms mm-hmm. of size and strength. Mm-hmm. Um, Does he fit? I mean, there's all this discussion yeah. here in Philadelphia that he's the right guy at the right time for them. Yeah, I think he's sort of, when you look at you know Sam Hinkies, I'm a huge fan of his tenure as a Sixers general manager that really you know sort of ignited my process into writing about the team and covering the team. You know, he always drafted for best player available and that put the Sixers in a position to draft someone of Joel Embiid's caliber, even though they might have had Nerlens Noel on the roster before that. Yeah. Uh, but I think Fultz fits both bills well. He, I think he's the consensus best player in the draft, and I think he will be the best player from this draft. But at the same time, he's a guy that can play on the ball, off the ball. He can score at all three levels, with whether it's three-pointers, whether it's pull-up jumpers in the mid-range game, or attacking the rim. And I think you know something that doesn't show up well in sort of statistics is how well he finishes at the rim, because that's right. very much hard to differentiate 
uh, kind of see through the noise of the numbers. But you know, the numbers don't really indicate how much how great his body control is and how reminiscent of it is to someone like Kyrie Irving. Well, five thirty-eight so, does not have him as being. Uh, I didn't see five. The Hoover, they have a forecast on the probability of making All Star. Okay, and the, he's not even. I think even the top five in okay. this draft. Um, but they but they have pointed out that a lot of that has to do with the poorness of the, of the data that they have on him because he played only one season. Yeah, and what do you given that he's played only one season? Is this the right time? How long will it be before the? Just we only have about a minute left. Sure. So how long brief. do you think it's going to be before the Sixers are? going to be competing you mean i don't know if they'd make the playoffs this season i think oh you know wow. depending okay. on I, I don't think i mean i guess it depends on how free agency might might go maybe they could contend for the seventh and eighth seed in the east if, if Jerome beats healthy and mm. maybe plays 50 or 60 games i think right. that's a distinct possibility but you know once uh fultz and ben simmons have more a year or two under their belts and you know because it'll be his rookie season yeah. too it obviously takes rookies a lot of time to adjust at the nba level of competition especially having two guys who are going to be their two main offensive focal points and they're 20 or yeah, how old you know, yeah ben Ooh. simmons will be 21 Fultz just turned 19 and you know they haven't obviously haven't played a minute on an nba court that, yet so that, it's hard that, to expect that's so high, much two two you know a projected two you know two seasons or so two or three seasons might actually be not a not bad news for sixers fans because you know you it, ideally it, you LeBron know, gives, james, gives lebron james to maybe sure. exit god mode you know yeah. in a in a a couple seasons, well, right? and you know, and, and the Warriors are still going to dominate for another Absolutely. couple of years. So this might be the right time. I know that a lot of teams are thinking about free agency, trading picks, and, and they're all starting to look long term in a way that that you don't really see in other sports because of the dominance of a couple teams. Well, I think that's what Sam Hankey thought when he first took over the Sixers. You know, state a few years ago, he always uh, claimed to have the longest room view in the room. Well, mm-hmm. well, thank you, thank you, Seamus, for joining us in the studio. Uh, Seamus is our, is our is our production assistant for the summer, and we're also joined by another production assistant for the summer, Zach Drapkin. Our general engineer, our Danielle, is, uh, has been our sound engineer for, for some time, Daniel Bruno. And we are getting uh, close to the end of the tenure of, of our, our wonderful Matt Johnson, who's been our producer now since the show began. We want to conclude our show, and we'll see you guys next week. Uh, you've been-